tonight I want to talk to you about when God is all you have. If you don't have an outline, please feel free to get one. And we're going to go through this as we examine Psalm 63. Did you know that 70%, not, now, now this is a pretty big figure. Did you know that 70% of our muscle and brain tissue is made up of water? 70%. Only oxygen is craved by the body more than water. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure that's accurate, though I did read that stat. I'm not sure it's accurate that only oxygen is craved by the body more than water because I seem to crave chocolate a lot. But the truth is, most Americans suffer from chronic dehydration, lack of water, uh, not caffeine is the number one trigger for daytime fatigue. And when the body doesn't get uh, 8 to 10 cups of water it needs on a daily basis, the body, listen to this, I, I looked this up, it says when it doesn't get 8 to 10 cups of water it needs on a daily basis, the, the body begins to harvest water from other sources like bones, tissue, joints, and blood. Our bodies crave water because it is essential to our existence. Dehydration illustrates also a truth from Psalm 63, a lesson we can learn in Psalm 63. The psalmist wrote these words, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no what? Water. I want you to participate with me tonight. I'm going to give you two or three opportunities to be part of this Bible study. What does it feel like when you are dehydrated physically? What, what is that feeling? What? Fatigue. That's good. Dry mouth and cramps. Huh? Nauseated. What? Headache. All right, not, not very good symptoms, are they? Not very good feeling. That's what it feels like to be dehydrated physically. What does it feel like to be dehydrated spiritually? Lonely. That's good. I like that. Lonely. What else? Reckless. Explain that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, somebody else. What does it feel like to be dehydrated spiritually? Is it miserable? Yeah. All right? Yes. Very good. Somebody over here? Exactly. Somewhere in the course of doing life, you and I, if we're not careful can get dehydrated spiritually to the point that we lose the desire and the hunger for an intimate relationship with our Redeemer. The, the passion drains away. Emptiness becomes a companion. Staleness becomes an acceptable way of life. Do you know what that feels like? You don't have to answer this out loud. Do you know what that feels like where, where staleness becomes an acceptable way of life? You see, two things work against us when we're dry spiritually. And there's not a blank, but I want you to write this down. I, 
there, there are two things that work against us when we are dry spiritually. Just find a place to write that down. Two things work against us when we are dry spiritually. One is time. The other is place. And I'll explain what those mean. One of the things that works against us when we are dry spiritually is that sometimes we go through hard times. Maybe your marriage is in a bad place right now. Maybe your marriage is just a wreck or... Or maybe you don't have a job, or perhaps your kids are struggling with issues, and uh, perhaps you're dealing with, with grief. Uh, I had a dear a pastor friend text me uh, just last night, and uh, I said, uh, Keith, uh, I resigned my church today, or, or this week. Um, it was unclear if he was announcing it uh, in, in, the, in the text, it was unclear to me if he, if he was announcing it today or if he had done it last week. But this is a hard time for him. The pressures of your job, perhaps, are draining you. This is, perhaps, for you because of family situations. Maybe it's a very hard time. I spoke to my brother Larry yesterday. Many of you asked me about how's Larry doing on a regular basis. Larry's not doing well right now. In fact, Larry just got back from Duke University and the doctors have almost said that there's just really not a whole lot left we can do for you. Uh, his lungs are filling up. Uh, his heart is, is, is extremely uh, weak as, and diseased. And, of course, he has this LVAT pump. And now it's not really keeping up with, with his heart. They're trying to increase the pump and trying to compensate for the weakness of his heart. But uh, he, all he can do is walk from the back of his house to the front of his house. And then he's out of breath and he's got to sit down and rest for a while and and he's still trying to preach on Sunday mornings. He said, I ride my wheelchair into church. I get up and I go to the pulpit and I sit down and I preach. He said, then they just about have to carry me out of the pulpit. Uh, and he talked last, yesterday. We talked for a long time yesterday. Uh, he talked a lot about heaven and things like that. This, this is a hard time for him. Some of you know what that's like, don't you? You've, you're in a hard time. And in those hard times, you can get depleted, spiritually drained. But not only is it hard times, but also sometimes it's a place that causes this dehydration, if you will. For some of you, it may be that your, your home is a hard place to live right now. Or maybe it's where you work. Perhaps you're the only Christian on your job. Maybe you're in a hard place in that situation. Or the kids at school make fun of you. And, uh, or on the college campus, there's, there's some problems there. and you, uh, They're trying to encourage you. People around you are trying to encourage you. But, but you've got to go back to that place tomorrow. Or you've got to go back to that place tonight. Sometimes the place where we are makes it hard to maintain our walk with God. Sometimes the very place we find ourselves in in life, it's hard to maintain our vitality and our faith in God and our walk with God because it's a hard place. Well, the good news is we're not the first to feel that way. We're not the first to feel spiritually drained and fatigued and dehydrated. Uh, we're not the first to need to be replenished. I'm encouraged sometimes when I see people in the Bible who struggle with things I struggle with. How about you? Psalm 63, 
if you look at your Bible, has any kind of notes on it. Psalm 63, who wrote this psalm according to your notes in your Bible? David. Does it have any other note there besides the fact that it was written by David? When he was in the desert of Judah. Now, folks, this is not a vacation. This is talking about a hard time and a hard place. When, a time reference, he was in the desert, a place reference. This is a psalm that's written by David when he was going through a hard time and when he was in a hard place. Many scholars believe that that, that this psalm was written by David as he was hiding at En Gedi, as his son Absalom was trying to take his life. Now, that would be a pretty hard time, wouldn't it? Your son would be trying to kill you. Your son wanted to do away with you. Your son wanted to remove you so that he could take over. David literally had to run from Jerusalem for his life. And he ran to the desert near the Dead Sea at a place called En Gedi. I've been there two times. I'm going to tell you, every time I've been there, it's been extremely hot. Uh, When we were there one time, it was well over 100 degrees. And in this hard place, this desert place, this lonely place, Donna talked about lonely, this lonely place, this empty place, this barren place, it was a hard time as he had to deal with his son turning against him. In fact, I want to take a few minutes. It won't take too long. Go over to the left, and let's just read this so you'll kind of get a picture of what David went through and perhaps what he was feeling. Uh, Go to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel chapter 15, uh, look at verse 13. We're not going to take time to read the whole story, but we're going to read a few references throughout the story. <clears throat> look in verse uh, 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Now, help me class, who was Absalom? His son. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. David basically said this, If we don't get out of here, none of us are going to be alive. I can't imagine what that would be like to know your son was doing that to you. Verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. In other words, the people in that area watched. They knew David was leaving, and they all came out, and they watched the king leaving. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Look at verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. Weeping as he went. His head was covered, and... He was barefoot, and all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now, let's fast forward, if we can, to chapter 16, verse 5. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there, and his name was Shammai, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. 
And he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you men of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Now, doesn't that encourage you? Here you're, you're leaving, your son is wanting to kill you, you're losing your kingdom, you're weeping over it, you're downtrodden, and on the way to the desert, then this guy is cursing you and saying, uh, you're getting what you deserved. Look at verse 11. David then said to Abshai and to all his officials, my son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more then, this Benjamite, leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Can you get that word picture in your mind? How humiliating, how devastating... That must have been. The king and all the people with them arrived at their destination. What's that next word? Exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. The king and all of his people arrived at their destination. Exhausted. David was not in a good place, nor was this a good time in his life. But in the midst of this desert experience, this trying experience, when David was physically, uh, emotionally, and spiritually depleted, David, watch this, David began to have a thirst. An unquenchable thirst. But it was not a thirst for water. It was a thirst for God. You see, sometimes... God is all you've got left. Psalm 63, put this on your notes. Psalm 63, it's in the, in the uh, introduction area. Psalm 63 has been called the soul, S-O-U-L. Psalm 63 has been called the soul of the Psalms. In fact, the earliest church sang it every morning. Why is it the soul of the Psalms? Because it gives us the essence of what the Psalms are all about. It expresses the essence of those hard times that we find ourselves in. And at times, circumstances leave us with nothing in life but God alone. David had, think about this, betrayed by his son, exiled from his throne, humiliated in the desert. And out of that awful experience, David wrote these words, Psalm 63. Now, before I read them, I want to read just eight verses. Before I read these eight verses, I want you to look for the personal pronoun, you and your. As David begins to have this thirst for God. Look, look at this, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. 
in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's interesting, the many, many times that David uses that personal pronoun, you or your, David has this intense desire for God alone. Now, on your notes, walk with me through this text. First of all, I said, when God is all you have, seek Him. One of the things we learn from David's desert experience where he is in a bad place and going through a difficult time, when he had nothing left, he had lost his kingdom, he had lost his family, he had lost everything financially. He was alone, he was empty, he had nothing. He had nothing but God. And when God is all you have, we learn from David, we should seek him. Verse 1, here's how he says it. Oh God... You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Help me, church. What does that word earnestly mean? And give me, maybe some of you have a different translation. What does the word earnestly mean? With resolve. That's good. Somebody else. Earnestly, I seek you. Steadfastly. Good. Any, huh? Sincerely. Very good. Put this, I think there's a place on your notes. David revealed an overwhelming passion for God Himself. Is that on your notes? Is there a blank there? All right. David revealed an overwhelming passion for God Himself. Here's what I mean by that He was not seeking what God could do for Him, He was seeking God Himself. Can I give you personal confession? There have been times when I've been more interested in seeking what God could give me than I have been in seeking God. There are times when I'm so called up in my life and my dreams and my goals and my wishes that I'm really seeking what God can do for me rather than just seeking God for who He is. Here's what David learned that we all need to grab hold of. Nothing but God can quench the thirst of your soul. So many people have never learned that lesson. We get involved in relationships hoping that will fill the void. We start drinking hoping that will cover up the pain and the emptiness. We get involved in sports or hobbies or causes hoping that activity will quench the thirst that we have. But nothing. Nothing will quench the thirst of your soul except God. 
And David, when he had lost everything, when he was literally living in a cave, because he no longer had a house or a palace, he no longer had a family. He no longer had a feast prepared for him every day. He no longer had the riches of the kingdom at his disposal. He, he no longer even had a son. The son was trying to kill him. When he had lost everything, he recognized there was one thing he still had. And he began to seek that one thing, God, earnestly. I never, never will forget being at a conference and being introduced to a man named Miles. This was a few years back. Uh, Miles was an interesting character, to say the least. He looked like a bouncer at a bar. Miles was a big old burly guy. He was big. He had a shaved head. He had a New York accent. He had tattoos all over his arms. And Miles was in church. And I wanted to know what his story was. I found out not only was Miles in church, Miles was on the church staff. Now that'll get your attention. So I had to find out his story. And Miles told me and some others about how he had been addicted to alcohol, how he had been addicted to drugs, how he had been addicted to pornography. And now, because of Jesus Christ and the difference that Christ has made in his life, Miles was on the church staff helping other people who used to be like him. Miles finally found what his soul was searching for. See, when he was taking the pills, his soul was searching. When he was looking at pornography, his soul was searching. When he was drinking, his soul was searching. And he finally found what his soul was searching for. And he went on staff to try to help other people like him. At a desert place called En Gedi, David made a life-altering discovery. He realized that nothing, nothing can satisfy us like God can. Maybe you're at your En Gedi. That hard time, that dry place where life seems almost too hard to deal with. God can use that dry experience in your life to finally show you that He is what you're thirsty for. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David was saying the one thing I, I need is God. So when God is all you have, tell me the first point. When God is all you have, seek Him. Number two, when God is all you have, worship Him. When God is all you have, worship Him. David wrote these words, beginning in verse 2. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than, than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Time out. I thought he was in a hard time and in a hard place. I thought that he had just lost everything and he had nothing. I thought that he was in this awful situation that was... Hard to even endure. How in the world 
It sounds, when we read verses 2 through 5, it sounds like David's in a worship service. Someone has said this, and I thought it was so good. Someone has said, we need the high moments with God, which we can recall in the low moments of life. David was still in a low time in his life, but he was recalling the high moments he had experienced before. Look at verse 2. He's exiled and alone. Yet he could remember seeing God's glory displayed in Jerusalem. He says, I have seen past tense. Not right now. Right now I'm in a hard time, in a hard place. But I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. David in that desert place, that very hard time, was recalling what he had seen in previous times of worship. Those sanctuary memories sustained him in the desert. Somebody, think about that one. Those sanctuary memories sustained him in the desert. You need some worship time, folks. And the worship sometimes is not just for the now. The worship sometimes is going to be for later. Those memories you'll have. Those sanctuary memories. You say, well, pastor, I don't understand. How do you worship and praise God when you've got nothing left? How do you worship and praise God when there is nothing left? When you've got nothing left to give and you've been stripped of everything that you have, how do you worship and praise God in that situation? But David shows us, thankfully, put this on your notes. A, we can praise God because of His love. Verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'm not going to glorify you because i got everything I've got. I'm not going to glorify you because my family is, is fine and healthy. I'm not going to glorify you because things are going great in the kingdom. Because quite frankly, it's all gone. It's all done. It's all over. It's all empty. It's all ruined. It's all a mess. But I will praise you for this. My son may not not love me. Absalom may not love me anymore. But God, you still love me. I will praise you for your love. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you're going through, but I can promise you this. No matter what you have lost, you have not lost the love of God. Romans 8, for what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And you start reading that list, and he comes to the end and says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You haven't lost his love. So when you've lost everything, one of the ways that you can, listen, watch this, one of the ways that you can worship your way out of that is you can worship him and praise him Because of his love. Number two, B on your outline. We can praise him because of his name. Elbow your neighbor and say, it's about to get good. Come on, do it. I want to see if you're awake. Are you awake? All right. You're about to praise God. We can praise God because of his name. Look at verse four. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up. My hands. You might want to write this down on the note somewhere. I don't think there's a blank. But the name of the Lord is the manifestation of His character. The name of the Lord is the manifestation of His character. There's not a blank there, I don't think. His name is synonymous with the Lord Himself. 
Let me give you a couple of examples and it'll, I think, make more sense to you. Go to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Pray or or spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may rejoice in you. And he's not just talking about the the literal name of God. He's talking about God himself. And again, it's very clear in Psalm 54. Go to Psalm 54. Psalm 54, verse 1, 4, and 6. Save me, O God. What's those next three words? By your name. Vindicate me by your might. He's not just talking about the the, the name God, but he's talking about that name is synonymous with God himself. Look at verse 4. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. His name, the Lord, is the one who sustains me. Uh, Look at verse 6. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. We can praise God because of His name, because the name represents His character. Can I give you a little assignment, especially if you're going through a hard uh, time, a dry time, and you're in a hard place? Can I give you a little assignment? Do a study of the names of God. Just open the Word and just start doing this. Get a concordance and do a study of the names of God. And start using those names to praise and worship Him. Number three, we've got to hurry we can praise God because He satisfies. He satisfies. Looking back in Psalm 63, verse 5, here's what He says. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. My soul will be satisfied. Have you ever been out and... uh, maybe you've done this with your wife or your husband. Have you ever been out running around and say, you know, I like a little something sweet. What do you want? I don't know. You know, you you go out maybe to eat and and, and that was good. You enjoyed it. But it's like, I I like a little something sweet. I I just don't know. Y'all can tell I got a sweet tooth, right? And and then you start naming all of those things, and and it's like, well, yeah, I like that, but I don't want that. You know, yeah, that sounds good, but that's not what I want. No, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. And then finally, you finally decide, Krispy Kreme donut. (laughs) I bet the hot light is on. On the way home, yeah, Krispy Kreme donut is for him. What is it for you? Dairy Queen. Marble slab. Who? A milkshake. Ooh. <laughs> what else? Give me one or two more. Who? Smoothie. Smoothie king. <laughs> Smoothie. <laughs> oh. That is the first time in a Bible son, Bible study somebody has stuck in a commercial. 
Oh, that's great. Smoothie King. They own Smoothie King and, is, and easily, if you want. I would recommend it highly. Let me go ahead and go ahead. Maybe I'll get a free one out of that, you know? Um, you know, we've all had those times, right? It's like, man, I just, what, what is it? I don't know what I want. I, I want something. What is it? And then it, it hits you. Smoothie King. That's what I want. And you go to Smoothie King or you go to Krispy Kreme or you go to Dairy Queen or you go wherever it is and you get what you were craving and it's like, ah, oh, man, that hits the spot. David said, my soul was craving something. My soul was craving God and in Him I am now satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? satisfied what do you pray how do you praise God when you've lost everything when you have nothing left David praised God because he found satisfaction in God now before we leave this and move on to the last section uh, I want you to notice that David repeatedly emphasized and this is going to be a little different for some of you Dave Storey is going to thank me for this later I want you to notice that David, not David Storey, but Dave the writer, uh, that David repeatedly emphasized the vocal and the physical dimension of his praise to God. Let me say that again. David repeatedly in this psalm emphasized the vocal and the physical dimension of his praise to God. Look look at this with me. Um, He says... Uh, Verse 3, for example. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. It's not just something that I feel. This is something I'm going to let my lips express. And then verse 4. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name, watch this, I will lift up my hands. There's there's that physical aspect of of his worship. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. You see, David was saying, when he was talking about, my lips will do this, and my hands will do this, and, and, and my mouth will do this, it was an outward expression of what he was feeling inwardly. And I got to thinking, maybe, just maybe, and I'm not trying to promote anything, but I'm just thinking maybe, at least privately, in church certainly if you want to do that, but at least privately, maybe we need to be a little more vocal in our praise. Maybe we need to be a little more physical in our praise. Maybe you need to get in your own little closet somewhere and literally put your hands up and talk to God out loud. Maybe you need to get a hymnal out and and. Sing to God. Now, I know that's a wild idea. But I promise you this. I promise you with my hand in the air. God is never going to say to you. You can't sing worth a lick. David said. You know, just get this picture in your mind. And some of you have been to Israel with me. So you can visualize it a little bit. In the cave at En Gedi. Can't you imagine in this cave, you hear this noise, there's this echo up in this cave, and, and David's up there just with his hands up and he's praising God. He's got nothing. And he's lost his kingdom. 
And his son is trying to kill him. But with his hands and with his mouth, he is singing praises to God. What do you do when you've lost everything? Well, when God is all you have, you worship Him because you still have Him. Number three. Oh, we've, 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 we've run out of time. All right. Uh, I'll give it to you so you can sleep tonight because if you don't get that blank filled in, it's going to hurt some of you. <clears throat> we, we, this will be good. I, I can do this. I can just read it. Uh, when God is all you have, remember Him. When God's all you have, remember Him. Here's how David says it in verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now, no, wait a minute. Let me stop right there. Let me say to you, I don't know what kind of bed David had in that cave, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it was not a Sealy posturepedic. Pretty confident his bed was probably the dirt floor. Maybe he put some straw or hay down. But as David lay on his bed, he says, On my bed I remember you, and I think of you through the watches of the night. In other words, have you ever had those nights when you just couldn't sleep? You know, when you're really struggling, when you've really had a great loss, the night is the worst time, isn't it? You can stay busy during the day. You can occupy, occupy your mind during the day. But at night when it's silent, at night when everyone else is gone, at night when it's just you in the darkness, that's a hard time for lots of people. At night when sleep fails and fear begins to stalk you, maybe you need to do what David did. On my bed, I remember you. And I think of you through the watches of the night. As the watches of the night pass, he's still awake. He cannot sleep. But rather than worry and fret, he's thinking and remembering God. By the word, the word remember means to recall what God has said and what God has done in the past in order to apply it to your situation. That's what the word implies. You remember what God has said and what God has done in the past in order to apply it to your situation. And when you do that, you can rest in God's protection and in God's provision. David said this, and with this I'll close. Verse 7, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I don't have anything. I've lost it all. I'm no longer king. But I rest in the shadow of your wings. Verse 8, My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me i want to close by asking you to notice the progress that david made Uh, in verse one he says my soul thirsts for you find it in your text verse one he says my soul thirsts for you in verse five he says my soul is satisfied in you but in verse eight he says my soul clings to you. David has progressed into the darkness of his days. He has progressed. And he has found out that nothing can take God's place in his life. Listen, 
David found out Absalom may take my throne, but nobody can take God's place. Why don't you bow your head? Let me pray with you. You know, the reason that some perhaps are not satisfied in life right now, sometimes it's because we're hugging the wrong thing. We're clinging to the wrong thing. And though it is very difficult, sometimes we have to go through a heartbreaking loss before we finally realize that nothing can take God's place in our lives. And so could I give you this little uh, assignment? Maybe this week, begin your day by telling God, my soul clings to you. Then go out and live like that. My soul clings to you. And then go out that day and live that way. Thank you for reminding us, Father, that when we have lost everything, we still have the one thing we desperately need. Thank you, Father, that you are the God we can cling to when we've lost everything else. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.